Alrighty, welcome to the very first class in the RCIA uh, session. These are brand new notes that I just typed up for this session after 15 years of RCA notes. Uh, so you guys are getting the benefit of the new notes that I'm typing up, or uh, you're getting the raw end of the deal because these are untested, but they should be based on the notes I've been using for years. And hopefully they'll actually read a little bit more uh, cleanly. Uh, so this, this is the first class, it's called God and Creation. And in this, we're going to discuss God and, wait for it, creation. <laughs> we're going to spend just a moment first off talking about how we cite things like the Bible and the Catechism, just to make sure everyone is on the same page, because throughout these classes, I will be giving you a number of quotes from both the Bible and the Catechism. And then we're going to have a little discussion about, you know, whether it matters if we believe in God uh, or if we believe in things like objective morality. Um, we're going to, you know, talk about whether our beliefs about where we come from shape how we interact with other people. Um, we're also going to talk about whether we can know God from reason alone uh, or whether or not we can know him only through faith or some admixture of the two. And then we're going to just talk about the basic facts that God exists. God is love. Uh, love requires another person to love. You can't just love if there's nothing to love. So God actually exists, we'll find out, as a community of persons. We call this in Catholicism, in, in Christianity, the Trinity. And, of course, there are some characteristics of God we'll talk about. He's, you know, perfect. He's outside of the world, outside of the universe, outside of space and time, etc., which is kind of a neat concept. So um, just a quick word here. This is a biblical citation. Um, biblical citations usually will look something like this. In this case, we're citing a New Testament book called the Book of John or the Gospel of John. It is one of the four Gospels. It is uh, a unique Gospel. The uh, first three are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call those the Synoptic Gospels because they all basically cover the same aspects of life. They were all written about the same time. And more or less, if you read one of them, each time you read the next one in the series, you're going to find that they cover a lot of the same things. John's Gospel was written a lot later. In fact, reportedly, it was written by John at the request of Ignatius, who was a bishop of Antioch, because he was trying to uh, help combat some of these uh, heresies that were already springing up even in the first century, beliefs that Jesus wasn't really God, or uh, it was actually the the docetist heresy, which said that uh, Jesus only seemed to be suffering, but that he wasn't really suffering on the cross, or he didn't really die, or something like that. And so John actually sets out in his gospel to tell the story of Jesus from a certain perspective, and he really emphasizes um, the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man. In fact, John's gospel begins with one of the most famous lines in all of scripture. In fact, John's gospel has some of the most famous lines in all scripture. The, the, the most famous line probably of all time is John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that he sent his only beloved son, that whoever would believe in him wouldn't fail or wouldn't uh, perish, but would have eternal life. This is, uh, there used to be a little guy who had the, the rainbow hair and uh, we'd hold up a sign at sporting events that said that. Anyway, uh, the Gideons who give out those free Bibles everywhere, including in the hotel rooms you stay at, um, they have this verse translated into like every language under the sun. 
but almost as famous and uh, in my opinion i think more more poetic and more beautiful is just the very opening of his gospel uh and we'll read it down below in a minute but it's in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god which is emphasizing jesus who is the word uh being both together with but distinct from god but also the same as god uh, we'll talk about that when we talk about the trinity um and then down here we see a catechetical citation so with with uh, gospel citations or, or, or scriptural citations, you'll see the book. Sometimes uh, in certain books, uh, like Paul's letters to Corinthians, there's actually two of them. So you'll see a one and then a two in front of it. Or if it's the Old Testament, first and second Samuel, or first and second Kings, or first and second Chronicles, first and second Maccabees, uh, etc. And then uh, you know, you'll see a number in front of it. John actually has three epistles as well. So there's John, which is his gospel. And there's one John, two John, and three John, which is first epistle, second epistle, and third epistle. And then here you'll see the, the number on the left side in the hour position, if you will. Uh, on the left side of the colon is the uh, chapter. And then, of course, each chapter is divided up into a bunch of different verses. And so this particular passage here um, is... Uh, we're quoting Jesus who says, you, I've come, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Uh, and he says that in John uh, chapter 8, verses 31 to 32. So if you were to want to find this, that's what you look for. The catechism is actually in a lot of ways simpler to cite because every single paragraph just has a number. So all you ever see is CCC, which is Catechism of the Catholic Church, CCC, and then the paragraph number. So you just open it up and you find that paragraph number and they'll take you there. So. Now that we've covered that, let's talk about the meaning of life. It's such a, a simple little topic to discuss to begin the, uh, the RCIA journey. Here's a fact. Everyone has to answer the big questions in life. Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? What's the meaning of all of this? Ultimately, we all seek truth. And we implicitly believe that the truth will, in fact, set us free. We sense in ourselves a longing for something not of this world. As C.S. Lewis put it, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Or as the Catechism puts it, the desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God, and God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only in God will he find the truth and the happiness that he never stops searching for. Or lastly, as St. Augustine puts it, uh, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, O Lord. So in this class, we're going to be talking about uh, the meaning of life and why being Catholic actually helps us to answer uh, the meaning of life in a lot of ways. Now, it's important to note that we're Catholic not just because we we like it, we think it's pretty, right? The the smells and the bells, as they say, they like the, the the liturgy, or it makes us feel good, right? That's not a sufficient reason to be Catholic. It's also not a sufficient reason to be Catholic merely to impress somebody. So even if it's a spouse or a fiance, uh, though that may be the initial prodding of the Holy Spirit, um, that's not a good enough reason to be Catholic. The only reason to be Catholic is because it is true. As C.S. Lewis put it, notably C.S. Lewis was not a Catholic, but I think uh, if he was alive today, he probably would have converted. Uh, but he put it this way. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because I see everything else by it. We're Catholic because it is from God, and it explains accurately the world around us. And the purpose of this class is to try to demonstrate that, looking at scripture, history, philosophy, and more.
Now, there's a couple of different approaches that people will commonly take to answer those big questions we were talking about a minute ago, but usually they can be broken down into three categories. So on the one hand, we have what we would call the naturalistic approach. Um, you might say this is reason alone, but the naturalistic approach says all I believe in is what I can see and, and touch and taste and smell and feel, right? All that's real is what I can sense. And there is a, a reasonableness to this approach, right? Um, if, if I can't detect something, then it's really, really hard to talk about it uh, or to make any, any claims about it at all. And so most people think, well, ideas like the soul, uh, let alone uh, a God who creates the world, just simply you know, don't make sense or we, we can't see them, we can't know them. And so so reason alone should tell us or should preclude uh, the very concept of God. Now, this doesn't work for a bunch of reasons. Um, and I put at least one of them here. And 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 this, I think, is actually the, the biggest issue is a purely naturalistic approach tends to dissolve everything into physics at the end of the day, right? It says you're just material, I'm just material. At the end of the day, you are a complicated bag of chemicals working itself out, right? And if that's really the case, if all we are is physical matter, then it's true that every single thing we do is essentially prescripted. And even our consciousness, but but our, our free will that we, we think we have when we choose to do things is utterly not free and caused 100% explainably by everything that comes before it. So um, just as we wouldn't fault vinegar and baking soda from reacting when you pour them together, we couldn't fault somebody for cheating, uh, whether it's at a test or, or on his spouse. Uh, you couldn't fault somebody for, for basically doing anything because at the end of the day, if all we are is a really complicated set of chemicals working itself out, then everything is cause and effect. And deep down, uh, we don't really believe that. Very few people actually will really hold to that. And even the people who claim to be hardcore determinists will usually wind up going back on it very quickly thereafter, um, saying, well, we ought to do this, or we ought to do that, or you shouldn't do this. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, book, Mere Christianity, which I'm a huge fan of, again, he's not a Catholic, but he's very, very close. And if you want some good reading, you could do far worse than picking up a copy of Mere Christianity if you've not read it. But he actually starts the whole book with a discussion of justice. And he says, we all intrinsically understand that you know, there is something outside of us we appeal to and we call it justice. He says, you know, when you see people arguing, you know, one person says, give me, give me a bit of your orange because I gave you a bit of mine last week. And the second one doesn't just say, well, no, I don't feel like it or no, I don't need to do that. But we implicitly understand the idea of justice. And so he tries to say, well, that was different, right? He, he tries to come up with an excuse or a reason why he shouldn't have to share a bit of his orange today or something along those lines, right? And so they're implicitly appealing to something outside of themselves, um, uh, the, the some source of, of, of justice, right? And so all of these are things that ultimately... Um, are, are, are founded in something that is uh, uniquely separate from the material world. And so just to kind of underscore this, uh, I said this a minute ago, but one of the things, if I, if I could leave you with no other, no other takeaway today, it would be this. Um, if, in fact, you are nothing but a bunch of atoms, 
um, you know, an atom isn't free, an atom can't think. And if one atom can't think, no matter where you put it in the world, then two atoms, no matter how they're related to each other, can't truly think. They can't truly uh, reason uh, or, 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 or come to, you know, free decisions, right? And if two can't do it, then four can't do it. And if four can't do it, then eight can't do it. Because it's a power they do not inherently contain in and of themselves. And so they can never just magically manifest this power of true freedom. But you know that you're free. You know that you're a moral agent. We experience it every single day. And if in fact you are free, then something in you is supernatural. Something in you is beyond the merely natural. And so we can actually cross naturalism off of the list of possibilities because it's not even sufficient enough to ground itself. Because ultimately, if we're not free and our thoughts aren't free, then every single thought we think we have, every single deduction we think we have, every single inference or conclusion we think we draw is utterly itself caused by what came before it, which would mean the entire basis for science is out the window because we simply can't help but conclude whatever it is that we wind up concluding, uh, whether or not it's it's true or not. Um, there's a Notre Dame philosopher named Alvin Plantinga, and I think he gives a, an example. Uh, he says, you know, at the end of the day, naturalism doesn't care about truth, uh, but it might care about survivability. And so, if you see bright orange and yellow flickery light, you know that gives off heat, whether you think it's a demon or you understand that it's fire, if you run from it in order to, you know, not get burned alive at the end of the day, uh, you know, your belief has done its job of helping you to survive long enough to pass on your genes. Now, I, I think you could take umbrage with this at the end of the day, uh, at least a little bit, because of course, um, you know, certain beliefs might make you, you know, if you truly understand what fire is, well, then you can use it as a tool. You can use it to heat things up. But the the principle behind it is still the same. Uh, the truth or falsity of your belief really doesn't matter so long as the outcome is that you uh, survive and you, you pass on your genes biologically. And so literally naturalism actually undermines the very root of the sciences themselves. In fact, C.S. Lewis makes a big argument about this in chapter three of the book, Miracles, which is also totally worth your time. So the flip side of the naturalistic coin or reason alone would be faith alone, the fideistic coin uh, or the fideistic side. And so what fideism would often say is, well, we know that, uh, you know, we can reason, sure, but our reason is flawed and we could never, you know, reason to God and so we can just reject reason. In fact, there are some um, there are some people in uh, the Middle Ages who believed that man was so corrupt that his reason would only ever leave him to err. Uh, and so they actually rejected reason entirely. And they said, "Well, you just need to believe." And this always seems to me like the uh, sort of the Hollywood version of belief in a sense, like just, just believe, right? It doesn't matter what you believe, just that you believe. And I always find that just kind of weak sauce at the end of the day. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of shallow, right? Um, but the real issue with the fideistic approach that says all you need to do is believe. It doesn't matter what you know. You don't have to think about it. Just, just accept it, of course, is it intrinsically makes faith to seem 
irrational uh, or unreasonable. And that, of course, denies a very core part of our being, which is, in fact, our reason. We are created in the image and likeness of God. And in that image, we have the ability to understand the world around us. And we have the ability to use reason, and yeah, our reason is imperfect, and sometimes we make mistakes, but that doesn't mean that reason is bad or is never to be trusted. Um, quite often, reason is a very certain guide, and uh, even when it makes mistakes, it's often not a mistake in reason so much as it is a mistake in uh, evidence collection, I guess we could say. So th those are your two main approaches, and, and the world kind of fights between these two approaches. But I think the best approach is what I want to call the Catholic approach. And that's not just because this is a class about being Catholic, but the word in Greek, katholikos, means, and we'll come back to this multiple times in this class, universal. Uh, or more, more correctly, the whole, or according to the whole. Um, it, you know, the, the, the faith that we profess, the Catholic faith is the, the one true faith given to the world, given to the church by Christ himself meant to bring everyone into reconciliation with God. And so it is the, it is the faith for everyone. Well, the, the approach to answering the big questions in life uses faith and reason and harmony. And so I call this the, the Catholic approach, but for good reason. This is actually uh, a quote from uh, now Saint Pope John Paul II from his encyclical Fides et Ratio, which of course is on faith and reason. And he says this, faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth and god has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth in a word to know himself so that by knowing and loving god men and women may also come to the fullness of truth about themselves so i guess the question is can we know god with reason can we know god without faith and the Catholic Church says, as far as knowing God without faith, yes, we can know God without faith. Um, in fact, the Church teaches uh, that the one true God, the Creator and Lord, can be known with certainty from His works by the natural light of human reason. And Paul makes this exact point in Romans 1. However, we can only know God imperfectly. So we can reason to a God who is outside of the material world. Uh, we can reason to a God who is the source of all being or goodness or beauty and truth. And even the pagans could do this uh, rough, roughly, but again, with, with great difficulty. But we can, we can get to that level of understanding God, um, which then, of course, always begs a question. Well, if we can reason to an all-good, all-powerful, self-sufficient, ever-present being, why would that being need to create? And I think, as we'll see in the end here, the Catholic answer is probably the strongest answer to this question. Man has struggled to know God, sometimes not acting reasonably, and he's created stories or, or, or myths to fill in the gaps. And these stories can affect our ability to understand who God is and uh, you know who we are, both in relationship to him and, of course, in relationship to each other. And so... I'm going to actually start by looking outside of the Christian, uh, Judeo-Christian tradition and looking at creation accounts from other faiths. 
right? Because if we take the, the rationalistic approach, we can get to this, right? We can get to a God who is all powerful and outside of, of the world. But then the question becomes, why does the world exist in the way that we experience it, right? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there good in the world? Why is there bad in the world? And I think it's very instructive in order to better understand um, who God is and what the Catholic answer is uh, to our creation is to start by looking outside of ourselves, right? So again, creation accounts in most religious traditions, they're, they're myths and they attempt to kind of explain or give an account of the world that we find around us, uh, the good in it as well as the bad. And again, we'll look at the Bible's creation accounts in a minute, but it's instructive to have a, a foil against which to contrast the uh, the Hebrew, Hebrew or, or Judeo-Christian narratives uh, and to show what sets them apart. Um, I actually had written up these notes entirely, and then I was reading a book uh, put out by Jimmy Aiken over at Catholic Answers called The Bible is a Catholic Book. And as I was reading it, he had this brilliant summary um, that I absolutely loved, so I just included it in... Uh, <laughs> In, in, in this book here, and he says this. He says, pagan cultures throughout the world um, thought the world uh, was made by their gods and their goddesses. And some myths claim that the gods reproduced sexually to make the elements of the world. Others, that there was a fierce battle amongst the gods and the world was formed from the corpses of the losers in some capacity. And mankind was then created as a, as a slave race to redeem uh, the gods of uh, drudgery. Sorry, uh, to relieve, rather, the gods of drudgery. The book of Genesis sets the record straight. The world was not produced by a multitude of finite gods, but it was the creation of a single great god, one supreme and supremely good being who is behind everything. Because of his infinite, unlimited power, he didn't need to use anything to make the world as the pagans... So, uh, sorry, because of his infinite, unlimited power, he didn't need to use anything to make the world as the pagans thought. He didn't need to mate with a goddess, and he didn't need to battle other gods and then make the world from their corpses. Rather, he simply spoke, and the elements of the world sprang into existence. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So I summarized here for you a couple of different creation accounts. Um... One of them is the Hindu, one of the Hindu creation accounts um, from the, the Vedic period. And we see that in a story of divine incest uh, and then war, man comes about basically as a mere byproduct of the gods. Um, uh, basically, Prajapti uh, is a god who is killed um, when the other gods are horrified at his incest with his daughter, um, who was the dawn. And... Prajapti created from his own self, fire, moon, sun, wind, and uh, the feminine dawn. And then the first four of the gods that he created that killed him uh, saw dawn, and they released their seed, which then becomes all of existence and so on and so forth. And from existence proceeds humanity. So humanity in this story, it's weird, but it's kind of a, a it's an accident. It's not really uh, intentional. And I think you can imagine if you truly believe that human beings are mere accidents and there's nothing intrinsically unique about them, I think that would influence 
how you relate to your fellow man. If, if, if your fellow man doesn't inherently have dignity, um, you know, then there's really nothing saying you couldn't treat him like another beast, uh, like you would a cow or, or an ant or, or something in between. Other accounts, like the Babylonian accounts, have men created as tools of the god, uh, tools of the gods. And so in the Babylonian account, uh, there's an evil god, uh, and he has a consort. And in the Enuma Elish, we see how um, this goddess is determined to destroy the other gods. And so she sets the evil god, Kingu, uh, at the head of a mighty army. And there's a great big war. And at the end of the day, um, one of the gods creates humans from the blood of the executed god, uh, evil god. Uh, and so in this situation, um, and then he sets them up to offer sacrifices to the gods to keep them happy and, and stop them from their, their ceaseless warring or their, their endless warring. And so in this situation, literally man is created from the blood of the evil god, right? And his job is merely to offer sacrifice. So if you're, if you're not doing your job, well, then you're kind of pointless again. You're, you're, you're expendable at the end of the day. Um, and I, I always include this one. I think it's funny. The Greek account, or at least one of the Greek accounts, has man being created as a divine joke. Uh, the story goes, Prometheus and Epimetheus were spared imprisonment in Tartarus. Um, they hadn't fought with their fellow Titans during the war uh, with the Olympians. And so they were instead given the task of creating creatures, including man. And Prometheus shapes man out of the mud, and Athena breathes life into his clay figure. We're going to see uh, this is a, a common trope in creation. In fact, um, it's almost like it, it's an echo of the truth uh, hidden inside of this account. And Prometheus is then assigned, or he signs up Prometheus, the task of giving the creatures of the earth their various qualities, like swiftness and cunning and strength and fur, you know, great qualities. And by the time he gets around to man, um, Epimetheus has given out all the good qualities, and there's none left. So Prometheus decides to make man stand upright as the gods did and to give them fire, which enrages the gods and there's him a place in eternal torment for this joke. But in this situation, literally, again, there's nothing special about man. He's just, uh, he's a divine prank at the end of the day. In each of these accounts, there's nothing special about man. He's an accident or he's a joke. And this means that there is nothing about him that's inherently worthwhile. You could not get from here to, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal from any of these accounts. So what's so special about the God of Abraham and why should we consider him? Well, First off, I'm going to give you an anecdotal proof, and this is something that has always resonated with me. I once saw a, uh, it's a rather pro-Zionist t-shirt. I'm not going to get into political philosophy with you guys um, on the state of Israel, etc., but I appreciated what the shirt itself said. And it listed a group of uh, different groups of people that had oppressed the Jewish people and no longer existed. Uh, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the, the Greeks, the Romans, the Nazis, the, the Stalinist communists, etc. And each of these was a giant nation in their day that had sought to end the Jewish people. And while the Jewish people still persist, none of these great nations is with us. And I think that that is pretty telling because we'll see in the scriptures written thousands of years ago, uh, God makes a promise uh, that his people will not go away and he'll protect them. But he also allows them repeatedly sometimes to fall into chastisement of some kind uh, whenever they are disobedient. 
in fact, in my undergraduate, I was reading a book. There's a, a book called History and Historians, which is a book of historiography. It's not very big. It's a little like you can fit it in your back pocket. Um, but it basically talked about the history of history. And one of the things I found utterly fascinating was that most historians consider the Jewish people to be the first truly historic people um, because they didn't just record. They weren't the first written accounts of anything, but they were the first people to give more or less objective views of their leaders and not just, you know, sing their praises and, and you know, the, the praise of their, their epic battles, et cetera, but, but literally to, to present them, you know, warts and all, so to speak. So in the Hebrew accounts, in the Judeo-Christian accounts, we get this whole system of thought uh, of man being an accident or a tool of the gods turned entirely on its head. And this is actually far more radical uh, than you probably realize. Um, the psalmist says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him little less than a god, and dost crown him with glory and honor. This is a radical and essentially unheard of in ancient accounts. Uh, account. <laughs> um, and in Genesis, we actually see there's not just one, but there's two different creation accounts. And that's actually an interesting fact we'll come back and, and maybe uh, talk about here in a few minutes. Um, but in creation account number one, we see this ordered creation. And I'm going to try and bump this down a little bit because I want these to, to show together. And so there's literally six days of creation, and then we have the rest. And so I like to stack these so you can kind of see how they relate to each other. Because what Genesis 1 is really trying to present to us more than anything else is the fact that creation is ordered and that man is a special creation. So um, normally I would read through all of this. I'm just going to give you the abbreviated notes because most people are familiar enough with this account from sitting in the doctor's office or reading books to small children or <laughs> whatever it happens to be. But, you know, in the first day, uh, we see the, the world is, is void and, and formless. And God says, let there be light. And there was. And then it says, e evening came and morning followed the first day. Um, because in, in the Hebrew cosmology, the day actually begins at sundown uh, and then uh, ends the next day at sundown. And uh, that actually comes into play a little bit, like when Jesus is on the cross and they want to take him down before sundown, before the Sabbath begins. So on the second day, the the account in Genesis 1 says that God creates a dome in the sky and separates the, the waters above from the waters below. And thus he creates uh, the sky and the the waters, right? The, the oceans, more or less. And this is one of those times when I like to point out the fact that I think it's a beautiful phrase, the waters above the heavens. Um, for a people who don't have any way to know what's actually up there to, to come up with just a term that paints a picture of what it is they see. And, and the stars and the skies can, could look like a, a giant, radiant, celestial sea uh, up in space. And so, you know, in, in this situation, we see a pre-scientific explanation or, or uh, visual imagery of what it is they see and that doesn't discredit this account because the account is not trying to be a scientific account of creation it's trying to be a poetic account of creation and you shouldn't fault them for a, a word like that any more than you would fault us for speaking of the sunrise when we know that uh relativity aside uh the sun doesn't actually rise and set it's the earth spinning that that gives the illusion of the sun rising and setting 
In fact, uh, I I remember this actually comes from a Michael Crichton book called Congo, or if it comes from the stuff that that book was based on. But at one point, there's a gorilla, I think it was called Coco, that they had uh, trained uh, in sign language. And it's really kind of fascinating. They At one point, the, the, he had a, a working vocabulary of a few hundred words, I think. And at one point, the gorilla took a drink of some milk and then set it down and made a sign. And the sign was something like, alligator milk and at first they were puzzled why they said why it said alligator milk and they realized the milk had gone bad and it spoiled and it was using its limited vocabulary to explain uh the problem that it was having and so again when we we read accounts like this in genesis we need to be careful to not read a modern scientific reading onto them because again that's not the point and in fact there's actually again we'll see in a minute two different creation accounts in genesis which tells us that at least one of them is meant to be understood figuratively so day two is the sky and the water and then day three god makes the the water collect in one area which allows the the land to come forth and then also so he creates the plants that are on the ground. Evening comes, morning follows, the fourth day, or the third day. And then on the fourth day, he creates the sun, and the moon, and the stars. And this should tell us that the days we've had in one, two, and three, at the very least, are not regular days. Um, because what is the day? You know, we, it's 24 hours the way we measure it, but it's measured that way precisely because, you know, that's roughly how we like to divide the amount of time it takes for the sun to make one full rotation or the earth to make one full rotation. So it makes the, the sun appear to, to, to rise, set, and then rise again. And we don't actually have the things that would cause the light for the first three days. We don't have sun, moon, and stars. So on day one, when it says the evening came and morning followed the first day, does that mean it's literally a 24-hour period? Well, if God is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, it certainly could still be a 24-hour day. There's, there's really no reason to say it couldn't be. Um, but there's also no reason intrinsically to say it has to be either. So when you get people who start making these arguments about the the uh, the length of how long the Earth has been around, you know that's it's not the hill I'm going to die on. As a, a professor friend of mine once said, you know there, there's battles that are worth fighting, there's battles that are not worth fighting. Uh, you know the Genesis accounts are trying to tell us a real truth, but they're using um, symbolic or metaphorical language or poetic language to relate that truth. Um, so bear that in mind as we're reading through this. Um, and in fact, if I have time, I guess, well, here's a quick aside. So, um, obviously we know man's going to get created. And one of the ways you can kind of understand, you know, how we as Catholics, people often ask, well, how do we feel about things like, uh, you know, evolution and, you know, can, can we believe in evolution as a Catholic and, or as a Christian? There's a great quote from Augustine on this as well um, that I'll, I'll give you guys down the road. I'm not going to worry about it today. But it basically talks about how you know things in the natural sciences can be known even by the pagans, and so we need not speak idiotically about them. Um, it's actually from a, a letter, a, a book entitled "On the the Literal Interpretation of Genesis 2, which is really funny. It's very very apt for this. Um, but I often will ask questions like this. So, and and how old do you think Adam was when God created him? And usually the answer is I get is, well, I never thought about that. Or, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20. Or some people even say 33 because apparently that's, you know, that's roughly the age Jesus was when he died. And, you know, if we take a strict literal reading of Genesis 1, well, how old is man when, when God creates him? He's 
one day old, right? He's not actually 26 years old because 26 years of time hasn't elapsed or whatever long you think, how old you think he is, he would have been created with the illusion of age. And if God could create a man with the illusion of age, there's nothing saying he couldn't create the whole universe with the illusion of age. So, you know, could it literally be a 6,000 year old universe that looks like it's 13 billion years old? Sure, it sure could. But of course, at that point, the question then becomes, what's even the point, right? Or how would you even know the difference? Could you know the difference? And the answer is no. So at the end of the day, you could be, you could be, if you really wanted to be a young earth creationist who thinks the world, the universe is 6,000 years old, but also says, yeah, it looks like it's 13 billion years old. And I have no problem with that because God created it with the illusion of age. But of course, I don't think God is necessarily that duplicitous. I don't think he would intentionally mislead us. And so personally... I don't put a whole lot of stock in it, but it's, you know, it's outside my real house. Anyway, point being on day four, God creates the sun and the moon and the stars. And then on day five, he creates the birds and the fish. And the sun and the moon and the stars are the things that, that lord over or measure out uh, the light. And the birds and the fish are the things that, that measure out or, or rule over or dwell in the, the sky and the water. Day six, he creates the animals and they eat the plants and then also man and man. So the animals rule over the land and the plants, but then man is kind of a special creation. Um, man is a, is a special creation of God. He's, he's, a, he's a capstone. Uh, and in fact, he's an image of God. Um, so, so with the creation of man, the creation count in Genesis one comes to its, its apex, right? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his image, in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So man is created in the image and likeness of God. The next time we see the word image is used in Genesis 5, we read this. Uh, when God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and he blessed them and he named them mankind. When they were created... When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, this is after Cain and Abel, uh, in his own image, named Seth. And Seth, after Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Um, and so here we see uh, the next time we encounter the idea of, of image and likeness, it's related to the bearing of a son. Um, so our takeaway from Genesis 1 really is this. Man is created in the image and likeness of God, and it tells us something about mankind. Man is the capstone or the culmination of all of creation. He's the final perfection for which everything was the groundwork and the, the precursor to. Everything points towards man, and so creation is ordered and for a purpose, and man actually shares in, to some extent, uh, the rulership, the divine nature of, of God. Now, what's really interesting is as soon as you get to chapter two, Genesis two, 
we're going to see a totally different order where the man is actually created first, created first before all of the other uh, creatures. So up here, remember, we have uh, light and then sky and water and then land and also plants and then sun, moon, and stars and then birds and the fish and then also the animals and then also man at the very, very end. But in Genesis 2, we read, when God created man, he, uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> we see this. Um, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent the rains to the earth, and there was no one on no one to work the ground, but the streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the Ruah, the spirit, and the man became a living being. And then the Lord creates a garden and he puts the man there and God puts man in charge of the garden. He tells him to shamar, which means to, to protect and to guard and to keep, keep watch, uh, to ward, uh, etc. And uh, then we see this. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. But for Adam, no suitable helper was made. Adam is the Hebrew word, just means the man. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last, this was now, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of her man. And that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, yet they felt no shame. This is actually a really beautiful passage. Um, John Paul II did a lot of meditation on this. And what we'll see is seven verses later, they'll feel shame. So literally, this is the last line of Genesis 2, and it takes seven verses of Genesis 3 for everything to fall apart. And that'll be what we talk about next time. Uh, because, of course, the whole point of a creation account is not just to explain the goodness of the world, but also the badness. And so we're going to see that Genesis 3 is setting itself up to explain why the world is bad when it's created by a God who is, in fact, all good. And as we, we learn uh, through the Revelation, uh, Christian Revelation uh, in uh, the, the epistles of St. John, uh, a God who is who is love. So Genesis 1 shows us that mankind is an image of God. But this image is completed in Genesis 2 when the male and female complete each other and become one. Um, and this actually is one of the reasons why man and woman are, that you're an image of the Trinity, right? You're an image of the, the Trinity because when, when the man and the woman come together um, and they become one, the love between them is so real that, you know, what happens when, when they come together and become one? Life flows from them and that life is so real that it is a distinct and new being a distinct and new person um you know a child right and so literally written into our very nature is the fact that we are designed to be miniature images of the trinity and then of course you know in this account in genesis 2 we have all of creation brought to the man and thus it's all created for man for mankind and all of mankind is of course bound up in the one man in adam um and the man and the woman they're complementary and he rejoices you know again they complete each other and 
you know, it's a it's a it's a very beautiful and, and poetic account that explains lots of things. And people have pointed out, I don't think I have this in the notes here, um, but there's lots of things that you can learn uh, or you can kind of understand about ancient psychology um, from looking at this. Right. So man is created in the wilderness, but the woman is created in in the garden. And, and that actually speaks to, in a sense, the the uh, different natures. Actually, I guess I put it in here right there. Um, you know, between, you know, men who tend to be more rough around the edges, uh, more wild, more aggressive, um, you know, more suited for the hunter gatherer lifestyle. Whereas you have women who are created in a garden, which is beautiful and, and cultivated and, uh, nurtured. And so, you know, it literally, you know, in, in this whole account is implicit, the difference between the sexes, right? Why men are the way that they are, women are the way that they are. Now, I pointed out already that there's a difference between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Um, and they both can't be literally true. But do they actually contradict? Are they both true? Is one of them true and one of them false? You know, are, are they both true? Are they both false? How do we understand this? Well, as Catholics, we understand that Genesis is using figurative language, but affirming a primeval event that took place at the beginning of the history of man. In fact, the Catholic Church, the Catechism says this in paragraph 390 about the fall, which we'll discuss next time when, when sin enters into the picture. But it definitely applies to uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as well. But the main point of Genesis 1 and 2 is, is to show... That creation was a planned event, a planned act by God with man as the focus. And man is created in the image of God. And this image is realized again in marriage when the two become one. This tells us something about ourselves, and it tells us something about God. God creates because God is love. As the Catechism says, St. John goes further when he affirms that God is love. God's very being is love. By sending his only Son in the spirit of love and the fullness of time, God has revealed his innermost secret. God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he has destined us to share in that exchange. God is love, and love gives freely for the sake of the other, expecting nothing in return. Love is the only reason for an all-perfect, self-sufficient being who lacks nothing. To create. Moreover, he experiences this being love in his very being as a community of persons. Again, the Catechism says this from the beginning, the revealed truth of the Holy Trinity has been at the very root of the Church's living faith, principally by means of baptism. It finds its expression in the rule of baptismal faith formulated in the preaching, catechesis, and prayer of the church. Such formulations are already found in the apostolic writing, such as the salutation taken up in the Eucharistic liturgy, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And thus we speak of God as existing as part of a trinity, a word that's not itself contained in scripture, but is implied directly by it and defined by the church councils. In order to articulate the dogma of the Trinity, the Catechism says in paragraph 251, the Church had to develop her own terminology with the help of certain notions of philosophical origin, substance, person, hypostasis, relation, and so on. 
In doing this, she did not submit the faith to human wisdom, but rather gave a new and unprecedented meaning to these terms, which from then on would be used to signify an ineffable or unspeakable mystery, infinitely beyond all that we can humanly understand. God is one being. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. That is the uh, that is the phrase that summarizes uh, what it means to be a Jew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord alone. The Lord is one, but He is complex. He is in fact a communion of three persons: Father, Son, and Spirit. And because He is love and wants us to know Him, He reveals in various ways His truth to us, principally through Scripture and tradition, and of course, um, through the incarnation, uh, most primarily. So the Father is spirit, and those who worship him worship in spirit and truth. He's not an old man in the sky with a beard, um, but he is the source of all. That is, uh, when God appears to Moses in Exodus and says, I want you to take my people out of Egypt, Moses says, well, great, but when I go to them, who do I say sent me? What's your name? And God reveals his name, a name that's so holy that the Jews dare to barely even speak it, and they won't write it down, which is why most of the time when you see in uh, in your Bible, it'll say the Lord. Well, that's a that's a gloss. And the word that's usually put there is the word Adonai. And the reason that's put there is they don't want to put down Yahweh, uh, which is how you would say I am who am or I am being itself, which is how God identifies himself as his name. For, 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 the, for the Jewish people, a name is very, very important. Knowing the name of somebody gives you a, a sort of power over them. And so uh, they never, ever write this down uh, except in uh, something like the Torah that is utterly holy and <laughs> guarded and safeguarded and protected um, because they don't want to uh, you know, muss up the name of God, which is one of the reasons why it's, it's one of the big 10, right? It's in, the, it's in the 10 commandments. So God, the father is God, right? Uh, he's outside of time and space. You know, he is the, the source of all creation, but the son Jesus is co-eternal with the Father from the beginning. We'll have a whole class talking about Jesus down the road, but just to kind of hint at it, right? In, in the beginning, as John says, this is what I, I read earlier, there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst men. So this is speaking of the Word and the incarnation of the Word, which, of course, is Jesus Christ himself. And then, of course, we have the Spirit. The Spirit's a bit more unique. Uh, it's the third person of the Trinity, and we see the Spirit all throughout the Old Testament. It fills Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Saul, David, the various prophets, uh, and ultimately descends of Christ at his baptism and is given uh, to all of the church is now, not not, is now given to all the church. Uh, the spirit, in a sense, is love itself. Um, Thomas Aquinas says uh, that the name love in God can be taken essentially and personally. And if taken personally, it is the proper name of the Holy Ghost, as word is the proper name of the Son. Also, from the Catechism 689, the one whom the Father has sent into our hearts, the Spirit of his Son, is truly God. Consubstantial with the Father and the Son, the Spirit is inseparable from them in both the inner life of the Trinity and his gift of love for the world. When the Father sends his word, he always sends his breath. In their joint mission, the Son and the Spirit are distinct, 
but inseparable. To be sure, it is Christ who is seen, the visible image of the invisible God, but it is the Spirit that reveals him. And so we read the reality of the Trinity from the Old Testament to the New, starting in the very first sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light. So this concept, to summarize everything we've talked about, is that God is love. And God freely creates the world because he wants to share that love with us. He wants to do what love does, which is freely give of itself, expecting nothing in return. And so he creates all being, all, all good, all powerful, all knowing God that he is. He creates a world that is itself good. In fact, after every single thing he creates in the Genesis 1 account, he pronounced it good. He says, and it was good. God saw that it was good. Evening came and morning followed the first day, the second day, the third day, so on and so forth. And so... As Catholics, we understand that understanding this about God, understanding his very nature as love, is the only reasonable answer at the end of the day to why would an all-perfect, all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful being create in the first place. It's not because he lacks anything. It's not because he was constrained or forced to create, but only because he is love and love creates freely, giving of itself for the sake of the Beloved. And all of the rest of what we're going to talk about, all of the rest of Christianity, of, of Catholicism, is wrapped up in that one thought. And I think it's a very powerful thought. And I don't know if, if this all just seems old hat to you, then that's great. Um, but ultimately, uh, it's, it's revolutionary, right? If it does seem old hat to you, uh, if it seems like something you, you already knew, it's only because Christianity has infiltrated the entire world, um, which is uh, itself quite a miraculous proof of God. In fact, in the Old Testament, God says he's going to give the Israelites, uh, you know, lands they didn't plow, far farmlands they didn't plow, buildings, cities they didn't build, etc. Uh, and he does it. He shows his might. We'll talk about this. We talk about salvation history. But he does it through uh, their obedience to him in battle. And he wins battles for them when they're greatly outnumbered repeatedly. And through this, the, these battles, he shows his might. But when it comes to the new and everlasting covenant with the church, he gives them the greatest empire the world has ever seen, the Roman Empire. And they don't have to lift a, lift a finger. In fact, he gives it to them through their martyrdom. Uh, as Tertullian, uh, one of the early church fathers, says, the, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And literally, uh, every time the, the church was put down, it grew back two, three, four, five times as strong, and it swept, it swept the Roman Empire without ever having to raise a sword until eventually the Roman Empire was given to the church, which is just a phenomenal concept. And of course, that sets us up for everything else we'll be talking about in the future. I'm going to go ahead and end this video here. Um, I may make some uh, a few changes to these notes before I pass them out in class. Um, and if I think about it, I'll actually include a link to these down below this video. So if you want to take a look at these notes, you're certainly welcome to have them. Um, if you use them, you know, feel free to use them for your own purposes. 
um, education or, or RCIA. You know, I, I do my best to present everything as accurately as I can. Um, obviously, if there's any mistakes in those, that mistake is purely on me, um, and I take full responsibility for it. Uh, but hopefully you found this helpful and, uh, and instructive. If you have any questions, feel free to leave a comment down below in this video. Um, obviously, if you like what I did, feel free to like and subscribe and share. And uh, I will be doing, hopefully, my entire RCA series um, in the coming weeks and months as I also spend time rewriting all of my notes. So uh, that being said, God bless you. And I'll see you in the next video.